Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. Coming up. I mean, the following winter wasn't much better. I mean, I, I lived in a garage um, in Chamonix. Um, and I was, un- I, I remember vividly sort of like, you know, I was, I was, I was cooking off my camping stove in the garage and I was sleeping under these like plastic garden furniture, um, freezing my ass off. And I remember just thinking this, this is grim, you know, this is actually grim, but actually it also sets you up, um, for bivouacs <laughs> and, um, and it, and it brings that sort of like, you know, sort of, I guess a little bit of toughness. Um, and you kind of learn to suffer a little bit. But I learned to suffer in a garage as opposed to on the mountains at that stage. But then it then went forward into the mountains. And I always revert myself back to that cold, miserable, minus 30 winter in the garage on the concrete floor. I'm John Horsfall, and on this weekly podcast, we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on your own grand adventure. My next guest is one of Britain's elite alpinists who has pioneered expeditions around the world. Having developed his skill in the UK and the Alps, Matt began climbing further afield in South America, Alaska, and the Himalayas. His goal in this greater ranges have always been to succeed on first ascents. We talk about some of his amazing moments along the way and how he got started as a mixed climber. So I am delighted to introduce Matt Helica to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, mate. No nice worries. Very good to meet you too. And uh, I mean, you are one of Britain's, you know, best alpinists. Is that what you call it? Alpinists? Well, alpinists, yeah. Alpinists is a very sort of... Um, uh, I think confusing word for some because people are like, well, what is an alpinist as opposed to a mountaineer or a rock climber or, or, a, or a ski mountaineer? It's, it's, I, I guess it's basically all those things combined, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, not, not just, not just one thing, but, um, bringing all components of, um, climbing and mountaineering together. Um, and that makes you an alpinist, I guess. <laughs> So how did this all start? How did you first sort of discover rock climbing and the sort of love of it? Well, um, where I grew up, I grew up on the Mendip Hills um, down in the southwest of the UK, uh, and uh, which is ju- it's just south of Bristol. And, um, and Bristol's got a very, very sort of vibrant sort of climbing uh, scene. Um, you know, I mean, now there is probably... Um, you know, people compare it to Sheffield in terms of where people want to be based as a climber. Um, you know, Bristol's like the, yeah, the, the Sheffield of the South, if you see what I mean. Um, so it's a very, very good scene down, down this way. And, um, and the climbing, the rock climbing around here is absolutely superb. Um, and it gives you a lot of access to a lot of really, really good rock. You can be down on the South Coast, 
in an hour and a half, same up to like the north coast of Devon, um, to Pembroke. Um, you know, you can climb on sea cliffs, you can boulder on sea cliffs. Um, you have the inland quarries that we have here as, as well. And also, you know, places like Cheddar Gorge, which obviously, sort of, you know, um, more sort of natural limestone gorges. So, um, so it's a really good zone to actually um, to actually be to to start rock climbing. And, and I was just very fortunate that I, that I grew up here um, and I literally um, found, I guess, my feet at a cliff called Split Rock. Um, I was known locally as Split Mat for a while um, because basically I'd always be there um, as a as a as a kid. You know, I started climbing when I was when I was twelve, and um, you know, I didn't have a clue what I was doing at that stage, obviously. And convinced my my father um, that uh, that I did know, um, and, they, and he was pretty trusting, thinking a twelve year old knew what they were doing. Um, but he would always come and help me. Um, to sort of set up top ropes up at Split Rock and uh, just do some just do some climbing up there, and then from from there it kind of like it kind of grew. Uh, the sort of twelve year old who knows knows better. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's it's kind of strange, really, in a way. I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot of trust there, I think. Um, but um, but no, but it, it, it's a really it's a really cool place to to start climbing. You know, there, there is a really good diversity of um, of, of rock types um, and of styles as well, um, but I guess I kind of, um, you know, after sort of starting rock climbing, uh, you know, I started to feel the flow for that, and then obviously after that point, I was kind of pretty fixated with the mountains as well, and um, and and I guess it felt like a natural progression for me um, to go from sort of rock climbing and into into winter climbing. And then from winter climbing to the Alps and then from the Alps to the greater ranges um, and then to, yeah, then to expeditions. Um, and I think that's what we touched upon as being an alpinist is, you know, you, you um, try to master all of those aspects and then you put it together into one neat package that allows you to go and do some really cool things um, in the mountains, just bringing all of those, all of those skills together. And, 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 and certainly, um, you know, from a UK perspective, we're very, very lucky to have um, an amazing climbing scene here. You know, um, the, um, as I said earlier, the styles are, are vast. There's, there's lots of different styles of climbing we can do in the UK. And also from a winter perspective as well. I mean, you know, we have Scotland and, um, and that is where I kind of cut my teeth into, into, into winter climbing and, um, and Scotland's, in terms of mixed climbing, you know, and I've climbed all over the world, is is probably the best mixed climbing in the you know in the world. Um, yeah, it's it's on our doorsteps. Um, the only problem with it is it's very ephemeral. It's not always in condition because, from an ethical point of view, um, you know, you have to get the right conditions to be climbing on the cliffs in Scotland. You can't just go. There's snow on the ground. You can't just go and scratch and dry tall your way up black cliffs you know they have to be rhymed up so therefore rhyme means basically you know pla you know snow that has um frozen onto the rock face to give you that really beautiful um rhymed ice effect and it looks like ice but it's just rhyme um and in, and in scottish winter climbing you know you can only climb on those cliffs when they're rhymed so you need snow you need the wind in the correct direction uh, for those cliffs to rhyme up for the cliffs to become into condition 
perhaps from an ethical point of view to be able to go climbing on there. So, um, so Scotland's very ephemeral from that point of view, but when you get it, it's like amazing. I mean, but I've been up, I've been up to Scotland and I've had trips up there where we've looked at the forecast and it looks like it's good to go. And then, yeah, then a big warm front comes through and like a promising winter, um, of weeks on end of good climbing can, can change overnight to basically a miserable soggy mess when you can't even leave the car um but that's what really makes it really 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 rewarding i guess and so was the sort of progression from bristol to scotland then out to the alps and then on to some of your bigger worldwide expeditions yeah i mean um i, th- I think i think the thing was is um uh you know, I, I, it was a, it was a, it was a very steep learning curve. And, um, I mean, I left school at 16. I was academically, I was terrible. You know, I was, um, I hated school. Um, and you know, I, I think, you know, I didn't really get any GCSEs or anything like that. And I certainly didn't want to do A levels. Um, and, um, yeah, I just wanted to go climbing and I knew from a very young age what I wanted to do. And, I remember talking to my dad about it and going, he's that's like, you know, his son, what do you want to be when you're older? I'm like, I want to be a climber, dad. And he's like, hmm, let's let's chat about that. <laughs> um was it on your UCAS? <laughs> or was it yeah, the ISCO? Well, <laughs> the ISCO yeah, exactly. thing where it goes, you'd be really good as like a hotel manager or a, a banker yeah. or something, just like all these rogue professions. Mountain climber was definitely not there. <laughs> I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled, mate, and it wasn't on there. It wasn't on there. So, um, so I had to kind of like, you know, um, find my own way with that. And um, I was very fortunate um, to uh, get some really good sponsors at a young age, um, who, you know, the majority of which I'm, I'm, I'm still with now, um, and that's like a little family thing um, for me. It feels like my family, my sponsors, because. Yeah, they've been with me for my whole journey. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it just seemed like the natural progression to go from rock to Scottish winter into the Alps. But then, yeah, I mean, I, I did my first winter season in the Alps. I'd never, you know, I, I, mean, I, I, I never had the benefit of doing like sort of ski trips at school. You know, my parents never sent me on those. So at, at sort of 16, I went to the Alps and like, yeah, I lived in a... Um, in a two-person apartment and we had 14 of us in there it was absolutely gross um and you know we were lying all lying on mattresses and you know there was drugs alcohol sex rock and roll but i wasn't involved in any of that unfortunately <laughs> I, I would literally just basically have my earplugs in and I would get up first thing in the morning and I skied every single day of that winter to try to teach myself. And um, and, and at that point, it, it wasn't to go skiing to be like a free rider or something like that. It was like literally um, to give me the access into the mountains um, because obviously in the Alps, you know, when you go um, uh, and do some winter alpinism, the last thing you want to be doing is snowshoeing. I mean, no one wants to snowshoe. I mean, that's misery. Um, and um, yeah, so the only access to get into the routes that I really wanted to go and do in winter in the Alps was by ski. And obviously I couldn't ski at that point. So I was like, well, I'm going to learn to ski. Um, and then I need to learn to ski them with a massive pack on. 
Um, we went through some craziness of skiing and climbing boots, which was a complete disaster because, you know, um, you know, you don't have any sort of like, you know, front flex. Um, the boots are very obviously much, much lower than a ski boot. Um, but, the, you know, but we were doing it and uh, we were like combating our way down um, after doing these big routes in, in winter, like, you know, stacking it every single turn with huge packs on your mate having to drag you out of the snow because you couldn't get up yourself, you know, because you'd fallen over so much. Um, but, um, yeah, and, and, and it was, it was pretty grim living to be honest with you in this apartment. Um, but it really kind of taught me, um, yeah, it, it taught me a lot and, um, and then the following winter wasn't much better. I mean, I, I lived in a garage um, in Chamonix um, and I was, un, I, I remember vividly sort of like, you know, I was, I was, I was cooking off my camping stove in the garage and I was sleeping under these like plastic garden furniture, um, freezing my ass off. And I remember just thinking, this, this is grim, you know, this is actually grim, but actually it also sets you up um, for bivouacs. And um, and it and it brings that sort of like you know sort of um, I guess a little bit of toughness um, and um, you kind of learn to suffer a little bit. But I learned to suffer in a garage as opposed to on the mountains at that stage. But then it then went forward into the mountains, and I always revert myself back to that cold, miserable minus thirty winter in the garage on the concrete floor. Um, uh, yeah. So no, I mean. Yeah, so, so the Alps was definitely um, something where I kind of took my rock climbing in the UK and my Scottish winter climbing in the UK to the Alps. And um, and to be brutally honest, I mean, the Alps can be hard. They're big days, they're big mountains. But in terms of um, the actual um, learning and in terms of a venue that really makes you a really good mountaineer, it, it, it's Scotland because in Scotland you go out in bad weather, you have to navigate, you're often wet and cold as opposed to dry cold, which is a lot more easy to manage in the Alps. In the Alps, you generally only go out if there's blue skies. Um, and, uh, and Scotland makes you hard. And I found that previous, you know, that since then rather, um, before a big trip, where I'd gone on an expedition, I'd always much prefer to spend a period of the preparation in Scotland over the Alps because it just brings that hardness back. And, you know, the walking's along, uh, you're carrying heavy packs, you know, you've got to deal with some really sort of inclement weather. And, um, and, and I think that's why British climbers have done so well in the greater ranges um, over the years because, yeah, our, our sort of um, place where we learn to all it's just hard. Yeah, I think um, when you were sort of saying that, I remember living when I was living in the Alps and came back. And as you say, the dry cold is completely different to the sort of British cold. I'd always find you go out minus 10 in a T-shirt in the Alps. be lovely. And then you'd come back and it'd be 12 degrees here and you would be wrapped up freezing cold. It's just like that wet wind chill that gets you every time and in scotland living in scotland i mean the weather is just erratic yeah yeah and i and i did and, and i did um you know i did winters in my van in scotland as well i mean a van i mean i've got a, quite a nice van now um 
But um, back then I had this really sort of rough fan that was just ply lined inside, didn't have any heaters. So then, you know, coming back after a big day in the hill in Scotland with all your gear, like soaking wet, your ropes gopping and trying to dry your kit out with the engine on. And then, and then you turn the engine off at night and you wake up freezing cold, you put your wet boots back on, you go climbing again, but your ropes are wet, your gloves haven't dried out. And oh yeah, what was I doing? I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't much fun. I mean, it's like, it's tight. It's definitely that whole like type two fun. Fun, yeah. yeah. We we had Liver, Livia Samoka on a couple of episodes back and she was talking about type two fun and how it's definitely the best. It's where the best stories come from. Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, I mean, I think with alpinism, it's always that. I mean, you're always, you're very rarely going, oh, this is sweet, you know. <laughs> you know, you're, 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 you're more going, this is miserable. What the hell am I doing? You know, this, I could be, I could be on some like beautiful, sunny, like beach or like some chilled sea cliff climbing or whatever. But yeah, like, you know, alpinism is just hard it's not glamorous um you know it's um but it is incredibly rewarding when you get down and um and also it's one of those things where i find you um yeah you just literally um are never fully kind of over it either because of the fact that you know you have this drive to um you know know what's around the next corner for example if you're kind of doing like a new route which is really what i'm about you know i really enjoy doing you know first ascents um because of that whole thing of yeah the unknowing if you like yeah it's that sort of fear of you know once it's been done you know that the fear factor has gone it's completely different you know i mean you know going repeating routes um is completely different to opening new routes for sure because you know uh like you say that whole element of doubt isn't there because you know it's possible and if you're and if you're climbing quite well and potentially other people who've done it you're like well i can climb better than them you know and the conditions are as good or if not better i can totally do this you know and um and it takes a little bit of the edge out of it for me, if I'm honest. Um, whereas, you know, more recently, I guess I've um, much preferred to, I've got a weather window. Obviously, it's been very different this year because of, of this whole pandemic. We've not been able to travel. But in normal years when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm winter climbing, um, yeah, I've, uh, you know, if, if I have a weather window, I'd much prefer to go and fail on something new as opposed to go and repeat something that has been climbed by other people um it's just a much different vibe and um yeah i you know along with sort of various number of partners i've opened up you know many new routes in the mountains across the world and um um and it's a it's a really rewarding experience that's for sure I think it was Tanner Hall who sort of said like when he opens up new couloirs or anything or goes somewhere else, as soon as he knows someone has already done that, it just takes all the fun and all the excitement out of it. Is that the sort of feeling you get from opening up new routes? Definitely. And also, I think the thing is, when I'm opening up new routes, um, I've never placed a bolt in my life. I mean, 
there's nothing wrong with bolts in the right places in the right context so for sport climbing bolts bolted lines awesome i'm well up for all that i i, I sport climb as well but um in the mountains i never ever take a bolted kit you know um people do um and i think renhard messner was the first person to say it's like you know it's it's murdering the impossible you know when you place a bolt in the mountains because I'm, I'm I'm definitely a big believer, and I think this comes a lot from our ethics of winter climbing in Scotland. Is that in Scotland there are no bolts in the mountains? You know, there's no fixed anchors. Um, you know, you're 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 climbing and you're searching for um, natural protection. So you have your cams, you have your wires. Um, you might have a peg that you can hammer in, but then it gets taken out again. Um, but um, yeah, so 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 nothing is actually being left on the mountain. Whereas, you know if you go and you get to a blank section and then you just get your drill out you drill a bolt it takes that edge out of it it takes that commitment out of it and also for the for the the next person who would come and repeat your route it then completely takes takes the edge away because you know um i, I i'm a big believer in leaving exactly what you find and then the experience for the next person is going to be close to yours you know i mean yeah we we've said in new routing once you've done it it takes the element of uncertainty if it's possible out of it for a second ascensionist or, or further down the road but still i think the you know as long as the experience the climbing experience and how you protect a climb to make it safe um, and how you sort of work out how you're going to get off the route safely. Um, you know, if, if that is still the same as the first person that went there to open these routes, it's it's still really, really cool. And, um, and yeah, I think far too many bolts in the mountains are placed when they really don't need to be. You know, I mean, I've seen bolts in, in the Montblanc Massif range placed next to, like, perfect crack lines where you can place a cam and then the second person up can take it out and you'd leave nothing there but someone's gone with a drill and guns and put a bolt in um but again i think that comes a lot from you know our uk ethics of climbing and the ethics in the uk of climbing is is very real and you know and if you were to basically go against that i mean there's enough people who would properly call you out on it and um um and yeah and for me it, it it's what keeps um the style of climbing um really um really special it's the sort of slogan for patagonia of just leave any footsteps and wait i can't just butchering this one uh what's this one it's like leave only footsteps and take only memories or something yeah along those lines i mean um yeah it's um yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate to be with Patagonia for um, almost 25 years now. So they were one of my first sponsors. Um, and they've, and like I said earlier, they're like a family to me. Um, I work really closely with those guys, um, you know, from the, 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 the office in Europe to also the people in Ventura in, uh, in California as well. And, um, and as an ambassador for Patagonia, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it's not just about the climbing, you know, it's, it's, it's also about, um, um, about how you conduct yourself in your community and, um, 
you know, I mean, you know, we're not all activists, but then also at the same time, I think it's really important for them that you have a passion and you really care about, you know, where you're at and um, want to protect those places. And, um, and also from a, you know, um, from that sort of thing as well, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm involved with the product testing. Um, so we get a lot of products um, that is kind of quite bizarre um, and they give it to the ambassadors and we take it away and we go, well, that's a bit weird, not sure about that. And then obviously that'll go back to the forge and they'll adjust it and come back. And then eventually it might go to production or it might not. And and, and that whole process of working with Patagonia is really, really cool as well. I really enjoy that. Um, you know, it's another aspect of, you know, um, using your experience in the mountains um, um, that other people can then benefit from when it comes from a, a clothing system point of view or a pack or a sleeping bag or something like that. One of your big trips was in Alaska. What was the sort of purpose behind this trip? I guess it kind of depends on what you mean. I mean I've, I've been to Alaska um, many times, um, but Alaska generally for me is a great place for alpinism. I mean, there's a number of reasons. Um, it's kind of like, I think um, someone used to call it like fast food alpinism. You know, you can literally go there, you know, you don't really need to worry about acclimatization unless you're climbing on, well, really like Forica, Hunter or Denali. You know, all the other mountains are pretty lower altitude. So you can just go and you can just go climbing. You haven't got to worry about, yeah, any altitude issues like you do if you go to the Himalayas, for example. Um, and it's just an amazing venue. I mean, you can literally, you know, be flow, you know, be, be, be taken in on a, um, on a bush plane within like three days of leaving the UK and you get dropped in the middle of nowhere and you are in that place for, yeah, as long as you want to be a month, five weeks, whatever. Um, and the mountains are very stunning. They really lend themselves to, to mixed climbing um and um and like i said with the access of the um of the bush plane it kind of makes things really easy to get in and out um and also to go and explore different zones so if you get dropped in into one one section of the range and the conditions are very bad when i mean conditions i mean people might not sort of fully understand when i say conditions is that obviously what we need when we're mixed climbing is we don't want too much snow um, because everything would be buried um, and you just spend forever kind of like digging out everything. Um, we want a form of um, consolidation within the snowpack from an avalanche point of view. Um, so obviously that's really, really important to make things safe. Um, and also we need to have that sort of melt-freeze build-up um, on the mountain faces so we get that, that ice to form. And, um, and 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 that's called neve. It's kind of a type of ice that you get on the mountains that is like very white, and it sticks to like rock. And it it's really a very different sort of ice to like a cascade ice. You imagine a cascade ice is very brittle. Um, it shatters when you place an ice axe into it. But a mountain mountain ice neve um, is very chewy. That's a, a way of describing it. And when your axes go into the, into neve, into mountain ice, it feels absolutely bomber. It doesn't feel like it's going to rip through. Um, it doesn't feel like it feels very, very, very secure. Um, and 
you know, and, and but that is also quite ephemeral. So therefore, you know, as I said, you need a period of melt freeze for for that to actually form. So we, you need storms, you need high temperatures to melt it, you need to refreeze, you need another storm, and you just need that process to keep kicking in to get these like sort of these these ribbons of ice that you see on the mountains that people can then go and they can go and climb up and and obviously the thing with mixed climbing is then linking these ribbons into into rock sections and then back onto into these into these ice and then um so therefore you're using your rock skills and using your mixed climbing skills um so yeah so so that's the really core cool thing is that so if the mountains are not in condition in, in one in one zone because the alaska range is massive um you can literally yeah you know get on the sat phone to Paul Roderick, who, who's our pilot in um, in Alaska from TAT, um, an awesome guy, um, who will literally, um, yeah, basically fly in, pick you up, and then take you to a different zone. And as I said, because it's such a huge place, you know, the conditions definitely vary from one place to another. Um, so I think from a um, yeah, from you know, from that point of view, it's an amazing place to go climbing you have a lot of possibilities um and they're just like they're just incredible mountains there like incredible mountains you know like beautiful granite spires and um yeah sort of interlinked with these like sort of like dripping ribbons of ice it's uh it's an it's an amazing place to climb and you don't have to worry about altitude and and for me that is one thing where you know i don't mind altitude i'm okay at altitude but when you start introducing altitude into the into the mix, the naturally the um, style of how you're going to climb, uh, or the technicality of how you're going to climb goes down because you know if you're climbing at eight thousand meters, um, it's hard work and it's more like high altitude walking, and I find that quite boring if I'm honest. You know, I want to be climbing. I don't want to be walking in the snow. Um, and you know so for me if i can find a mountain that is maybe i don't know six and a half thousand meters maximum um but the actual relief of the face is plus a thousand meters to two thousand meters then it means you can climb on a really big committing mountain but without the altitude issues but because of that you can climb really hard technical routes and that is where i'm i find things like really interesting um and and it comes down to that whole thing as well is you know i i, I like to go to these places where no one's been and i mean i'd hate to be involved in these things where there are like i mean i only saw a picture of everest base camp quite recently i mean it looked horrific i mean base camp was like two miles long yeah. I mean, you know, and then there's, 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 there's fixed ropes everywhere. There's hundreds of people, there's footsteps and yeah, that's, that's not for me. Um, that's not saying it's not for everyone. Um, and, and everyone should find their own, um, you know, what they find acceptable and the style that they wish to climb in. And, um, and, and also for me, you know, the style I like to climb is Alpine style in the mountains, um, which I guess up until a while ago it was quite a modern way of thinking you know it used to be years and years ago that you had this capsule style so you fix ropes and you put a camp and then you fix ropes and you put a camp and then you might come back down the ropes the base camp and recover and then you go back up the ropes and back down and back up and back down 
but the problem with that obviously is it takes a lot of time um you're in the danger zone for quite a long period of time um if there is objective danger and what i mean by that is you know if there are avalanche prone slopes or if there are ice cliffs looming above you that you don't want to be hanging around at for long periods of time um but also i think from a commitment side of things as well you know again i think it was mark twite who said you know you you have that commitment to the you know you have that connection to the ground when there are fixed ropes you've never left the ground right so I know exactly what he means, you know, and it just takes that level of, yeah, of edge and, you know, um, being completely off the leash um, out of it. And alpine style climbing is basically when it's just you and your mate at the bottom, you've got a rucksack each, you've got two ropes, you might have a third rope as a tagline so you can haul a rucksack between the two of you. But literally, you're just swinging leads, swinging leads all the way up the mountain, and you're not having any connection to the ground, and you're not fixing any any ropes. Um, and that is for me, like, you know, the way I like to climb because it's it feels very committing, it feels very fluid because you're always moving. Um, but then also at the same time, there is a an element of that that makes it slightly more dangerous, I guess, because you know things go wrong um yeah you know you've only got two ropes to get down as opposed to just wrapping down hundreds of meters of fixed rope but um but you just work that out if it goes wrong have there been moments where you have come into trouble climbing yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think you know um yeah yeah i have um and i've had um some some uh, you know and I'm not going to lie, I've lost a lot of friends to the mountains, um, like close friends, you know, and um, and that's difficult. And, um, um, and yeah, I mean, we all have our, we all have our moments, but, um, but, but I kind of do see um, how I climb as um, it's very calculated. Um, I'm not reckless. Um, I really plan everything from equipment to line to descent to what you're eating to, you know, all those important things that will keep you going. Um, and, um, and I think it's, you know, and it also comes down to the fact of being in those places with the right people as well. Um, and I've got like a core group of people that I'll go on expedition with to climb in the mountains. Only a very small handful of people. Um, but it takes a long time to build that rapport, you know, and, you know, with a lot of my mates that we climb, we don't even need to have a discussion. You know, it's, you know, you have that feeling through the rope if your mates are a bit anxious about something or maybe if you're a bit anxious about something or if you think mm, we're we're pushing a bit deep here. We might need to take a step back and descend or do you know what, mate? We're not pushing hard enough. What's the matter with us? It's just like kind of crack on, you know, you know, there's, there's something going on, but we're just being just in a bad vibe, you know, we need to step this thing up, you know? So, um, so partners are very, very important. Um, and you know, you know, a good partner will take you to the edge 
um, and hopefully pull you back again. Um, and, um, you know, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think to be honest with you, you know, alpinism is a dangerous sport and, um, there's always going to be an element of danger. You're never, ever going to take that away. Um, but then also that is something that makes it as, um, as rewarding as what it is. Um, I accept the risks, you know, I've, as I said, I've, I've gone through that process of losing friends to the mountains. I know the damage that that also leaves behind to loved ones. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very crazy thing. I mean, you know, I'm, I've, you know, I've done it all my life. I'm, I'm sucked in, uh, you know, I, I feel now that, you know, I'm still quite lucky to be here because I look back at times in my twenties and early thirties where, yeah, I was pretty loose at times. And as you get older, you obviously become more experienced and a bit more risk averse. Um, and try to make the right decisions or try to be less reckless in terms of your route choice. Um, so now if, if I'm doing a, doing a trip, you know, it, it really is a thing where we're like, well, clearly, you know, because we have had friends that haven't come back, you know, you do look at the line to make sure objectively that it's safe, you know, and maybe if it's not safe, then you'll just go, do you know what, mate, let's look at this mountain instead, shall we? There's lots of mountains. And, you know, I'd hate to be hit on the head by something, you know, or something like that. Um, so, yeah, but it's, you know, I mean, um, but I think, you know, uh, I think it can get a bit of a bad rap sometimes in terms of people thinking that it's it's, it's really dangerous. And, um, and I think a lot of it, if I'm honest as well, like you know, when you see it in the press sometimes on the news about Everest, all that, it gets very much bad press and glorified from that side of things. But climbers who are this sounds maybe a bit egotistical but climbers who are really pushing hard in the mountains there are few accidents um because they are very in tuned to what they're doing and they're talented um it's the people who are less experienced that can put that vibe across that what we're doing is is dangerous even though it is dangerous but we just manage manage the risks better yeah i i think you know people listening might sort of question about like you know what drives you to risk your life for doing this but as you say the experience of professionals is very i mean i imagine like most they're completely control freaks in their environment they know exactly the sort of snowpack they sort of dig away at it and it's when you say a sort of bad rep it's the people joe blogs from down the road can pay a hundred thousand to go and climb mount everest having never climbed before and so he pays a hundred thousand and he can just go up with all the oxygen and they basically sort of force him up but and he's never climbed but he just sort of wants to climb mount everest because it's the tallest mountain in the world and so I sort of imagine that your, what you do is more of a sort of sense of discovery. It's a sense of fulfillment. And you are very controlled in what you do. You can't always, things will always happen. But in terms of what you do, it's always about minimizing risk. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think for sure, you know, I mean, I, I would never, um, you know, I, I can't compare myself to, um, you know, these people paying all this money to go and do the, these big mountains in the Himalayas, you know, guided. I mean, it's complete, it's a completely different thing. If you were to put those people in the environments that we're climbing in, I mean, they wouldn't be able to pull a move off the ground. You know what I mean? So um, it's a very, very different thing. And, and it's um, and it does frustrate me sometimes, whereas people go like, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a mountaineer, I do all this and this and this. Like, and you're like, mm. It's a completely different ball game. It's completely different, you know, and um, yeah. So I think, but I think, you know, it's, um, um, I think you're right. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, it is, it, it is just a very calculated thing but and i guess yeah i am a control freak i mean it's funny you know like i see what i'm doing is safe um i hate flying i hate flying uh i i, I get really scared flying it's ridiculous you know and everyone's like looking at me going, what's the matter with them you know but i mean i hate flying because i'm not in control you know i'd, I'd much rather have a go myself up front um, as opposed to relying on someone else you're in, you're in a, tr- a tube we're out of your control yeah 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 but in the mountains you know i feel that i have a, a huge element of control um with me and you know and also with with the experience of my partner as well like they you know, gel together you know and um yeah and uh so yeah i i guess um from that sort of things you know i am um but then also it you know uh you know in in, in having to in in, in you know in committing my life to climbing as well um yeah it, it, it can it can have certainly sort of um some sort of negative effects on other aspects of your life as well in terms of um yeah relationships and all of that stuff down the road because it just makes all that sort of stuff quite hard because you're just so focused and driven in terms of what you're doing so yeah it's quite it, it can be it can be it, it, it's a it's an amazing thing to be able to do but it can also then you know be um not so positive in other aspects i think it was ben sanders who sort of described it as sort of close to having like a coca uh a drug problem it's sort of so addictive but you don't really know what it's like it's you know it has all the capacity to burn all your money it has all to ruin every relationship but there's something about living life on the edge or doing something you love like what you do that has that sort of capacity which people can't really understand exactly i mean it's an absolute passion and um and if i didn't climb i mean i look at people and go if you didn't climb what 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 do you do like you know what do you do with your life you know and um obviously there's much more other things than climbing um but um for me in my life it's kind of the be all one end all and it always has been all my life and um you know i've missed out probably on a lot of cool stuff and a lot of cool experiences um because of the fact that i'm so driven and passionate about this single thing but i think that is where also being like an all-round climber is actually really quite challenging quite interesting because you know I'm not just a winter climber. I'm not just a rock climber. I'm, I'm all combined. And that's also very cool because you also get to like move with the seasons, you know? So like when the rock season's over, 
I'm not pining because I've you know I've got to wait the whole winter to go rock climbing again. Um, you know, or I've got to travel to places to do that instead or whatever. It's like right, okay, winter's on, and now I've got you know, I get my skis on. And I'm going to go winter climbing, and then when 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 the winter season's over, right, I'm back onto rock climbing and bouldering and trad climbing and doing trips away, doing that instead. And and I think um having you know, it, I think if I was just focused on one aspect of climbing, let's just say I was just a boulderer, um, you know, it, it, I think it would feel less, um, less, it, it would use up my time less. Um, but because I'm trying to do everything, it's like a full-time commitment, you know, and and obviously the thing with that as well is that from a training point of view, it makes things very difficult because all the training for each aspect is also very, very different. Um, you know, just because you're maybe going, just because you're like sport climbing well, it doesn't mean you're going to transfer that fitness into the mountains well, because you know, in the mountains, you know, you need a lot more cardio work. Whereas when you're sport climbing, you don't, so you don't really do any much or much cardio at all, just weight management stuff. But then, yeah, then you go into the winter season and you can't even get to the mountain because you're knackered. But your fingers are like strong as hell, you know, and, you know, and, and you're climbing really well and you're really lean. But so, yeah, the, the transfer from each different aspect of climbing can be a nightmare. And that for me is one thing that I really you know, suffer with because I'm, I, I'm on this thing at the moment. And I just really want to climb like top end in all aspects and i you know to be fair i do more or less anyway but i've set myself these goals in terms of what i want to do um with that and um so at the moment i'm rock climbing quite well but yeah if i was to then go straight back into the mountains now you know i'll be climbing well but yeah i would be like suffering big time you know from a cardio point of view um but the good thing is that obviously that comes back because I have a high base because I've done it all my life. But um, it just means that it just needs adapting. And um, and yeah, and like for my expeditions next year, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll at least have a winter to springboard into an expedition. So you get a bit more sort of ski and mountain fitness as opposed to just rock fitness, which is what I'm doing at the moment. Because the training that goes into your expedition is phenomenal in terms of your diet because you... From, from sort of five ten years ago, you're you sort of moved from diet to diet, and now you're much more sort of plant based. Um, have you sort of found the sort of transfer from a normal everyday diet to the more plant based, sports focused? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I find food fascinating and. The, all of that that goes with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was ve- I was vegetarian for many many years, twenty years, I don't know. And then the last um, six years or so, I've been vegan. Um, and um, and the reason I chose to be vegan was for a number of reasons. From an environmental point of view, um, my carbon footprint was pretty big because of the fact that I was flying on expeditions and I drive a, a van you know, and all that sort of stuff. So I was trying to like curb my carbon footprint. So I was trying to do the right thing from, from that side of things, but also from a animal welfare point of view as well. I love animals, um, um, dogs, especially love dogs. 
I, I became vegan for those reasons, but also I, I really wanted to kind of like um, see how I could do it from a, um, yeah, from a, a health performance side of things as well. And, and I've tried to do it the right way. I mean, I, I supplement um, a lot, like you know, vitamin D, B12. Um, I, I take some beta aniline, which is stuff that you get from meat normally, which kind of helps with sort of power endurance type stuff. Um, and I, I, I'm really kind of careful with the amounts that I eat. Um, although at the moment, I'm kind of like, because of this phase of training that I'm in at the moment, which is like coming out of base phase, you know, where you just basically build muscle. Um, I've literally been um, like in sort of this, this sort of calorie um calorie surplus for the whole winter um and then i'm climbing heavy at the moment um because of muscle mass but then as the season goes on when i get closer to my rock projects then i'll start to cut a little bit and then i'll go into sort of calorie surf um uh calorie calorie deficit um and just lose a little bit to then send and then come back up then to like sort of fighting weight again um but i i you know but I, I've also done it wrong as well. You know, I mean, I like, I feel a lot better and stronger now um, eating um, as opposed to when I was just always on about trying to stay light. I mean, I'm 77 kg at the moment. I mean, last year at this time, I was like 71. Um, and I know I can get my weight back down to that, um, to that level just by losing muscle mass, um, which I probably will do for a project later in the autumn um but then obviously it's a fine line between cutting and being light and sending um it's a fine line between that and going too far down into like potentially having like an eating disorder because climbing you know climbing whether people like it or not is a is a it's a strength to weight ratio sport if you're lighter, you'll climb harder. I mean, I'm sorry, it's how it works, you know. Um, but then you have to make sure that, you know, that you obviously keep that element of um, of robustness, I would say. And um, and I got injured. I, I, I blew an A2 pulley in my finger when I was going really, really well last year, um, like a bad rupture. And I think it was because I was so low in terms of sort of calories that my tendons are probably getting weaker. And I think I probably blew my tendon because of, because of my diet as opposed to doing anything wrong. So, um, so yeah, so all of that I find quite fascinating. Um, and again, you know, if you were to then put that context into alpinism, yeah, you need to eat loads because, you know, it's, it's more, you know, I mean, there's no point in being, really skinny and thin for a big trip to the mountains because you'll have no reserve um but then yeah you don't really want that reserve when you're trying to do performance rock climbing so it's um you know but i i also find very fascinating how your body adapts and how you can change your body i mean my body is very responsive to training i guess and to and to what i eat i know if i've eaten badly and i hate myself for it um, and, and I just feel terrible, uh, or I know if I've been eating the right things and well, and, um, there's a very good book actually called thrive, uh, which is, um, Brendan, 
Brazier, something like that, I think his name is, Brendan Brazier, who was a triathlete um, and he did a, uh, and he's a vegan, um, he did a cookbook, it's called Thrive, I think it's called um, Energy, something, Thrive Energy Living or something like that, and um, or Energy Performance. Um, and that's a very good cookbook. Um, and I use that quite a lot for, for cooking because he comes at it from a, from an athlete point of view, um, in terms of what vegans actually need, um, to try to keep obviously performance. Um, but it can be a challenge. I mean, you know, I'm in my van at the moment all the time and trying to cook, you know, I do cook well, and I eat really well and I am very um, particular in terms of what I eat. Um, but you know, it's not always so easy on like just two hobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, it's been absolutely amazing sort of hearing about all the stuff you've been getting up to. There's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week. Um, with the first being on your trips or expedition, what's the one thing that you always, what sort of gadget do you always take with you? It has to be my music. It's got to be my, uh, I love music. Um, so I'd always need my, my AirPods probably. So it'd be my AirPods for my music. And obviously I'd need my phone as well for that. Um, downloaded music. I've done that before. I've gone on an expedition, had all my tunes lined up, flew on to somewhere and I'm like, I've not downloaded anything and had no music. That was brutal. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I love the music. I love my, I'm very, you know, in terms of genres, I love my hip hop. I love my drum and bass. Any particular songs? Yeah, and I, and I, and I if, you, if you missed it, I said at the moment I'm I'm listening a lot to Drake, um, and uh, yeah, you know, so basically a, a lot of UK sort of like a lot of UK hip hop as well. I'm really into at the moment, you know, sort of gangster rap. <laughs> um, I kind of like it. I quite I find that quite cool and quite quite motivating. And um, but occasionally I do go back. I, I I revert back to my old school sort of yeah, Rage Against the Machine and cypress hill and stuff like that you know um but i love um like chasing status and um you know if i want a bit of dance a bit of dead mouse sometimes stuff like that you know um but yeah no i so music is my motivation man for sure and if i'm training i don't have music i may as well not train um yeah it's a it's a big thing it's a big part of my life actually yeah i'm ruining my ears i'm sure of it what about your favorite uh adventure or travel book it's pretty easy. I'm, I'm not a great reader, to be fair. Um, but there's one book that I've had as my motivational Bible um, for years. And there's a climber, American climber called Mark Twite, who from a, you know, I've, I've met Mark um, and I don't have heroes, but he's very motivating for me. He's close to one for me. Um, and he has a book called uh, Kiss or Kill. And it's, uh, yeah, it's Kiss or Kill, the story of a serial climber. And he's an American alpinist. He gave up climbing years ago, but his writing and his style is incredibly motivating. And I see very much parallels in his life to my life. And um, I have to say, and in terms of reading that book, um, over and over again, it's definitely helped me um, from a life journey point of view as well. So yeah, read that book. It's really, really cool. Okay. Why are these adventures important to you? Adventures are important to me because I mean, there's a number of reasons. It's, it's, it's obviously there's the, the satisfaction 
that you get from um, adventure um, and the unknown. And I think that is something that I think everyone should experience in their lives. But also um, from a human element as well, from you know, the, uh, the friendships that you build with people um, in these environments. And, um, and it definitely gives you a, a very close bond with people that you go climbing with. Um, and it doesn't have to be an epic trip. It doesn't have to be this epic storm or whatever for you to kind of have this sort of like um, um, this bond. It can just be a, a subtle experience. It can be just a sunrise. It can be a bivouac. It can be a pitch of climbing. That was the most memorable thing ever. Or it can be, you know, getting up a boulder problem in the wet where you're both properly going for it and giving each other loads of like motivation and you've got the tunes going and it's, it's those things that i think is is what's really important nice what about sort of a favorite adventure quote i have got one but i'm trying to think about it now um and actually it's a it, it, it's a it's a it's actually a mark twight quote and um I wish I could flip my phone up and find it, but I can't. But it's it's along the lines of um, um, I'm going to get this so wrong, but it's along the lines of um, life would be very um, life would be very upsetting if you basically didn't. Um, I could be very upset if you didn't basically go for what you really dream about doing. Um, and then being alive to kind of look back and knowing that you never did. Um, if that makes sense, that's not the exact quote, but it's along those lines. Yeah, it's the, it's the idea of um, regret of what what if exactly and and i have in my life like no um I, i've always had no um no regret and uh and i think you know and, and i've and I made the decisions that i've made for the right reason at the right time and um and and, and i think it's also kind of a big you know with that quote is a very much the thing of you know making sure you do take those opportunities when they arise if they feel like you should um and um because yeah i mean regret would be a horrible thing um so yeah you've got to charge yeah i think um i remember seeing some horrific stat of people in like an old people's home and uh regrets that they had and Usually it's always, I wish I had gone for this or gone for that. It's always the things they didn't do rather than the things they did do. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, I think we can all learn from that, you know, and, um, and I think particularly with this whole last year that everyone's had, that's been really, really tough. I think a lot of people have probably been given that kick up the ass that they need to go, do you know what, actually, wow, that's a year that's gone so quick. Um, I need to, I need to get on with this, you know, and I need to take all these opportunities that are coming to me to, um, 
make my life more fulfilling and to um um yeah and and to not be that person who turns down opportunity because they feel they should um when actually deep down is is something that they really want yeah i i I agree with that i think um i imagine a lot of people were sort of sort of walking like zombies day to day in their routine and then suddenly the pandemic hit and they were like whoa what just happened where did five ten twenty years just go been doing the same thing exactly people listening are always keen to travel and go on these sort of grand expeditions what's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to get started in what you do i think to um to find a mentor um to uh, be inspired by by someone um, in particular that um, you can uh, that you can follow to um, yeah just to kind of you know give you um, and help you with that ambition. Um, I think certainly uh, it's important, particularly when the mountains are involved, to uh, become proficient in the mountains to not become a liability um i mean i've never called a rescue helicopter in my life um yeah i've known some people who've called 20 um because of the probably because of their decisions you know um and so i i think you know i would say if you want to get into it i mean there's loads of um people out there i mean i'm also a mountain guide i'm an ifmj mountain guide so i also take people um climbing and skiing and uh you know yeah mountaineering um so i I would say you know maybe invest uh, in some time with a guide uh, or with an instructor um to go to learn the appropriate techniques to kind of make yourself feel more comfortable in the environment um and also being comfortable in the environment also just means also just putting yourself in that environment i mean it's even I now, even though I've been in the mountains all my life, if I've been out of them for a while, it would take me a couple of trips back into them to kind of feel completely in tune. Um, so again, you know, if you're going to go and do this like once a year, you know, and go a trip to the Alps, maybe go up to Scotland first for like a couple of weekends, just get yourself like in the vibe and in tune with the mountains so you can, you know, feel them and know what's going on. Um, as opposed to just go there and just jump into something. But I certainly think, you know, you know, getting experience with good people um, is a real game changer. Um, and um, yeah, and, and there's also like the National Mountain Centres in the UK, like Plaza Brennan, Glenmore Lodge. They do loads of courses. So if you don't want to hire a private guide to do that, you can join a bigger group, which also then obviously um, is great because you also meet like-minded people who also want to go and do the same things as you um and there are some charities um that actually um uh pay for people to um actually go and do these things as well um you can find them online you can find them through the plaza brenner website um yeah you know know, young people who want to go to the alps but want that experience and yeah there's a charity that will help fund those trips and then guides and then there's also that's one thing is that you know it's, it's finding your crew as well. That's really important. Um, and people that you want to be, that you want to be doing this with people that you're happy to share time and space with. 
Um, because yeah, I mean, I would never do a trip with someone who wasn't close to me because as I said, the human element of climbing is just as important as the physical one. So yeah. So basically go and get loads of experience from the right people. Very nice. Um, finally, what are you doing now and how can people follow your uh, adventures in the future? Well, now I am, um, I'm, I'm sort of in the UK at the moment, um, for obvious reasons. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm basically focused on some rock climbing projects, uh, throughout the summer, some trad climbing projects and some sport climbing projects, a bit of bouldering. Um, and then I'll then, you know, wait until the winter again and then get back into the mountains and alpinism and, and all of that stuff, winter climbing again, when the season comes around. Um, and then, uh, we're planning an expedition for next year, um, to the Himalayas. Um, so to be honest with you, the, the best way to, um, to follow me is probably through my Instagram. Um, I have a website, um, which I update like once a year. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, probably for like sort of a live feed, if you like, of, of, of what's going on and where I put all my media is probably through Instagram. Um, and that's just Matt underscore Helica. Um, I'm sure you can link me in on that one. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's probably the best way of, uh, yeah, of keeping in touch. And also, um, you know, in normal years, I do lecture circuits as well. Um, and yeah, and I do lectures, we do films um, at, at film festivals. So um, yeah, you can always, so I'd love for, you know, so if people are always interested, I'm, I like to think I'm an approachable guy. So um, if, if you ever see me at any of these film festivals or, um, or come and see my lectures, um, yeah, come and say hi and, um, or drop me a, or drop me a DM and if I can help in any way I can uh, with any questions that people may have, um, then yeah, I'll do my best. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I probably won't get back straight away because my admin is shocking. I mean, I literally struggle to sort of reply to about one email a day, um, but, um, but I will get back to you. Believe me, I, I, I will get back. <laughs> well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to your stories and can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, your Instagram and website will be in the description below. Yeah, it's just been fascinating hearing all about it. Well, mate, well, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing uh, hearing the rest of your, of your podcast series. You're doing a great job. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now. And don't forget to subscribe and sign up to the monthly newsletter, which is in the description below. I hope you enjoyed the show and if you did, tag me on Instagram at John Horsfall. I'm always keen to connect with other adventurers and I look forward to next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at bet mgm 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.